Good morning, friends. My name is Dave. If we have not met, if you're new with us, I'm one of the pastors here um, of Cedar Mill Bible Church. It's a wonderful day to be with us. This morning, we are starting a brand new series that we're going to be in for a number of weeks where we're going to be looking at the life of a guy in the Bible named Moses. You may have heard of him. Um, He's kind of a big deal. And uh, in the process of looking at his life, we're going to learn about faith about trusting God in a way that helps us find deliverance. We're going to be talking about faith that crushes injustice. We're going to be talking about faith that opposes oppression, faith that leads to the kind of of peace and hope and joy and life that God longs for us as his children to have now and forever. That's where we're headed in this series. And today, we're going to start where we should start, At the very beginning. That's what Mary Poppins said, so we should do it, right? Uh, Exodus chapter 1. If you have a Bible this morning, open with me to Exodus chapter 1. It's the second book in the scriptures, if you're not familiar. If you forgot your Bible today, we have one in the rack in front of you or under the seat. It'll also be on the screens, but sometimes it's just good to have it in your hands, isn't it? Some of you are like, yeah, preach it, pastor. I like that. Okay. Exodus chapter 1. The opening verses of Exodus actually kind of connect two stories, the story that comes at the end of Genesis to the story that's going to be told in the book of Exodus. It's the story of Joseph that's concluding. Some of you will remember that Joseph comes to Egypt as a slave, and then he rises to prestige and prominence and a position of power, and then his father, Jacob, and the rest of their family follow him to escape famine, and they prosper in the land of Egypt. They, they grow. The family begins to multiply. Generations pass. Joseph dies. And now in verse 8, chapter 1 of Exodus, a new story, a new era launches. And here's where, we'll, where we will begin today. Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Friends, I want you to notice the descriptive words in these opening paragraphs. Forced Labor, slave masters, harsh labor, oppressed, bitter, ruthless. Work them ruthlessly is said twice, and it's the concluding phrase. Life in Egypt for the Hebrew people has gone from safe and secure to brutal and unbearable. And just when you think it cannot possibly get any worse... The king of Egypt, verse 15, said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, 
When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Some of you ladies are like, heck yeah. Um, It's like girl power morning this morning. Okay, here we go. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Friends, if we want to understand the story of Moses, we must first understand the situation into which he was born. Here it is in short. The Hebrew people came to Egypt as welcomed famine refugees, but as their numbers increased and they started to thrive, racism grips the heart of this new pharaoh, and out of an irrational fear of an ethnic minority, this ruler, in the name of national security, justifies slavery and ultimately legislates a call for statewide genocide. Now, I say it that way because I understand as we get into the story of Moses that This is a Disney movie, right? It's a cartoon, and it was a good cartoon, by the way. I am not knocking the Prince of Egypt. That's solid, solid stuff. It's one of my daughter's very favorite movies. But the real film, the movie described in the Bible, is not for children, and it is certainly not rated PG. Consider the last verse of chapter 1 with me. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, not to the police force, not to the military, not to some undercover agency. Then Pharaoh gave this order to the entire Egyptian population. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now, we we read that, and we know it's bad, but think with me for a minute about how this played out, because I have a hard time believing That these Hebrew mothers are are birthing sons and then saying, well, I guess it's the law, so let's go down to the river and toss him in. You know, Pharaoh said so, so we should probably do it. Is that how it went? No way. These mothers are hiding their children. For nine months, they worried and stressed and pleaded with God, please just let it be a girl. And when it wasn't, their fear and terror and panic and anxiety was almost unbearable. I thought this week as I prepared this message about the diary of Anne Frank, some of you know this book, you remember reading it in school perhaps. If you didn't, Anne Frank was a young Jewish girl whose family hid from the Nazis during the Holocaust. And while they were in hiding, Anne... This, this young girl, this, this teenage girl, wrote an exhaustive diary about her experience, about how much horror and dread and stress she felt all the time. About how even just sneezing at the wrong moment could result in your entire family being rounded up, shipped away, and exterminated. Friends, this is Exodus chapter 1. How in the world do you hide an infant? 
How do you keep him quiet? He needs to be nursed. He needs to be changed. What do you do when he will do nothing but scream? See, this is a hard reality, but we often just glaze past it. We must understand this. In the land of Egypt, every day, doors to Hebrew homes were being kicked open and women are screaming as their infant sons are ripped from their hands and carried off to the river to be drowned. And fathers are having to make the impossible decision, do I hold my wife back or do I fight these people coming through my door and most certainly be killed myself as well? This is life for the Hebrew people in Egypt. This is what Moses comes into, Exodus chapter 2. Here's the situation, ready? Now, it's the first word of Exodus chapter 2. Now, in the middle of all that's happening, in the middle of all this suffering, in the middle of all this fear and terrible, unspeakable oppression, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. In the middle of all this, he gets married, and she became pregnant, And she gave birth to a son. Friends, this is not good news. At this point in the story, as a reader, if we don't know the end already, we gasp, we stress, we worry. Will this little boy suffer the same fate as oh so many have? When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could not hide him, when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. And her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Friends, the question I want to ask today as we look at these first two chapters in Exodus is, how does God deliver How how does God deliver? How does God bring justice? How will God save his people from this irrational tyrant who is using state power to oppress and annihilate them? And, And when you think about it, God could have done this in a million ways, right? He's God. He has infinite power. He can do whatever he wants. And so as I read this story, I just think to myself, I would have done it differently than God. If I were God, which, which by the way, let's get real clear here, I am not. But if I were God, I would not have done this the same way that God did it. I would have just gone and done like the Darth Vader chokehold on that dude. I'd have been like, hey, Pharaoh, zip it. And he'd have been like, and I'd have been like, yeah. And I just hold it, held it there. 
And he'd gone down, right? Or I'd done the Obi-Wan Kenobi thing. And I'd been like, these are not the droids. These are not the people that you want to oppress. That's my last Star Wars reference today, I promise. Okay. <laughs> right? I, I would have brought a rival pharaoh in who was a good guy to raise up and seize power. I mean, there's so many possible options for God to take this guy out. Tragic chariot accident. Do whatever you want, Lord, but just get rid of this dude. But here, listen, God doesn't just want to take Pharaoh out. He wants to bring his people in. God doesn't just want to take Pharaoh out. He wants to bring his people in. He wants to bring his people into the kind of trusting and faith-filled relationship with himself that won't just save them from Pharaoh, but from all the evil and brokenness and sin and oppression and injustice that will keep them from trusting him in this world. God doesn't just want to do something for them. He wants to do something in them. So how does God deliver? First in this story, we see that God delivers covertly. I've got three things for you today, and they all rhyme. So if you're taking notes, first one, covertly. One of the things the Exodus writer does so brilliantly in telling this story is that he kind of leaves God out of these first two chapters. He's, he's, he's hardly mentioned. He's, he's very much a non-factor. It doesn't say at the beginning of Exodus, God looked down and saw that his people were suffering and he resolved to make things right. It doesn't say the people turned to the Lord and he heard their cries. Nope. No, these people are suffering. They are enslaved. They are treated harshly. Their children are being murdered. And God does not seem to be in a big hurry to solve the issue. I mean, this is years and years, decades and generations of slavery and suffering. And it seems that God is nowhere to be found. And what the narrator is doing here, friends, is genius. He's tapping into our very common and universal human instinct to when tragedy or oppression or injustice occurs, to ask, God, where were you? God, where are you and why are you not stopping this? God, why aren't you fixing things? Why aren't you making things right? We need you now. We, need you. we needed you then. We needed you before the accident. Have you ever been there? You ever been there? Have you ever wondered where God was in the midst of your pain? And I have to tell you, friends, I do not preach this sermon lightly this morning because I have had a few and a significant God, where are you? Why would you allow this to happen moments in my life recently? Friends, one of the reasons I believe we often ask, where is God in the midst of tragedy, is because we don't always see him. We don't always see him in the midst of We can't always see what he's up to. In fact, over and over and over again in the scriptures, instead of working plainly or obviously or, or right out in the open, God often works covertly. One thing we have to see in this story is that not one of the Hebrew people has any idea of what God is up to. Maybe his mother has an inkling. Maybe his mother, perhaps his sister. But I'm going to tell you something right now that's really going to bug you. I'm going to create some tension and some angst in your soul, and then I'm just going to leave you with it. You're going to have to wrestle with it. Maybe all week. I'll phrase it as a question. How long from the birth of Moses, how long from the situation we read about in Exodus chapter 1, how many years 
Do the Israelites, do the Hebrew people continue to suffer in slavery? How long does it go on from, from this point forward? 80 years! 80 years! 80 years before we see what God is doing. 80 years before he brings deliverance from this moment. I'll say it again. Not one of the Hebrew people has any idea of what God is up to, and yet he is up to something. He's up to a big something. Friends, this story, perhaps more than any other, teaches us that when God seems the most hidden, he is not When God seems absent, he is not. When God seems to have forgotten you and your suffering, he is actually at work behind the scenes in ways you may never even understand this side of heaven. Charles Spurgeon said, listen, this is so good. God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trace his heart. Friends, is there an area of your life right now where you're having a hard time seeing God at work? Is there an area of your life where he's being a bit more covert than you wish he would be? Friends, know this. God is always at work even when we don't see and even when we don't understand. Here's the second way that God often delivers. Subversively. Covertly, subversively. When we read this story... Pharaoh is trying to weaken the Hebrew people, right? He's threatened by them. He's trying to weaken them. He's trying to make them less powerful, less of a threat to himself. And so what does he do? I'll be more specific since you don't answer. (laughs) Who does he set out to kill? He sets out to kill the baby boys. Why not the girls? I mean, he's just killing the boys, and he's very clear, like, kill the boys, don't kill the girls. Boys, no. Girls, yes, right? Why does he just kill the boys? Because girls are not a threat. Girls are not strong and powerful and fearless and heroic. And yet, and yet, who are the heroes in this story? Who are the characters of amazing bravery and courage and daring determination? It's the women, It's the women. I know the Bible is written in a patriarchal time, but man, God, it was all about the girl power. Let me tell you, it's not just this generation that we're in. He sees you, ladies. It's the mother of this baby who resolves to hide him. It's the sister of this brother who fearlessly goes down to the river to ensure his safety. It's even the daughter of Pharaoh himself. But before any of them, right in the middle of chapter one, we have these two midwives. You need to know that that culturally, midwives were not all that significant. I know, you have to call the midwife people here? Call the midwife. In our world, midwives are awesome. Like, we love that show. Some of you watch it, and you're like, yeah, midwives. Not in the ancient world, friends. They were as low on the social ladder as you could get. These are single Hebrew women living in a society where having a family was everything. These are the have-nots of the have-nots. These are the servants of the slave people. And yet, do you notice that they are the only names given in chapter 1? They're the only names given. 
Shifra and Pua. Shifra and Pua. Shifra and Pua. Shifra and Pua. For centuries, commentators have debated, scholars have wrestled with and discussed, archaeologists have tried to figure it out, figure out who this Pharaoh is. Which Pharaoh was this? Why do they wrestle with it? Because we really don't know. And why don't we know? Because he's not even named. The most powerful man in the entire world at this time, nameless, insignificant in this story, compared with two heroic Hebrew single women, Shifra and Puah. If you're a single woman in here, you know, sometimes in the church we kind of look past single people, single women in particular, not God. Not God. Pharaoh discounts the girls. He does not think that women can take him down. But do you see how subversive our God is? Do you see how subversive our God is? The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Friends, you have to understand, Pharaoh is a scary man. Pharaoh is a powerful man. Pharaoh is a mighty ruler. He has the ability to do much harm to these two women. But Shifra and Pua, they don't fear Pharaoh. They fear God. These two women may be living in Egypt, but deep in their hearts, they know the one who was the Lord of the entire universe. Shifra and Pua don't live in awe of an earthly king, but of a God who has the power and might and majesty to reward and bless and harm and discipline to a much greater degree than some nameless pharaoh of Egypt. Friends, let me just pause us here for some self-reflection. Because all of us fear something. All of us fear something. All of us have an ultimate fear of something. Let me say it in a way that maybe more accurately describes what the Bible means by this. All of us are mesmerized by something. All of us are in awe of something that, that shapes and directs our lives, that influences our decisions, that drives us to do this instead of this. If you want to stand for God's subversive justice in a world of evil and oppression, root your life in the fear of the Lord, in the awe of the glory of God. Let me ask you, today, followers of Christ, how much time do you spend thinking about, meditating on, reading about the mesmerizing majesty of God in the scriptures? Are you filling your mind and a heart with, with his enormity, with his power, with his grace, with his majesty, with his goodness? Are you overwhelmed by the size of your God every single day? Do you remind him every day that he is greater than every single, single pharaoh in this world? That all the other pharaohs and gods and kings that say, seek after me and be impressed by me and be awestruck by my power are nothing compared to him. Do you know that? Is your life rooted in an awe of the Lord God Almighty? Here's another thing. It's all about the subversiveness of God. 
Moses floats, he set afloat by his mom, on the river that was intended for his death. He goes to the family that was out for his murder. He, he's now going to be raised in the very palace that has persecuted his own people. Think about this with me for just a minute. If someone was trying to kill your baby, what would you do? You would keep that baby as far away from that person as you possibly could, right? God puts Moses under Pharaoh's care. Evil's instrument of death becomes God's instrument of life. Listen to this, friends. Sometimes God will use what seems to be killing you to strengthen you. Sometimes God will use what seems to be killing you to help you. Sometimes God will use what seems to be killing you to prepare you, to help you become who he longs for you to be. Have you thought about your suffering that way before? Are you going through something hard? Have you considered, even in the agony of that moment, that subversively in ways you may not even understand, God is using the hardest things of this life to deliver you, and not just you, but his people in this world. So how does God deliver covertly, subversively? And here's our last point today, eternally. Covertly, subversively, eternally. Go back with me to the very beginning of chapter 2. I'm going to Bible nerd out on you guys for just a minute. So focus. This is some good, good stuff right here. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. Listen. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Does anyone else think that sentence is strange? Did you catch it the first time I read through it? Were you like, that's weird? Like, when she saw that this was a fine child, she hid him for three months. You're like, huh? That doesn't seem right. Is that a misprint? Right? That can't not be how this goes. Like, he's really cute. We should probably save his life. Right? Like, this guy, he's a looker. He's gonna break some Hebrew hearts. Oh, like, tuck him away. I mean, like, what would happen if he was ugly? I mean, no, no, no. No. The word, listen, listen, that's not what's happening here. The word for fine is the Hebrew word tov. And tov means simply good. But more significantly, tov is a word that would have reminded the Hebrew people of the story of the fall of humanity at the beginning of the book of Genesis. The beginning of the book of Genesis. It's, we read this. This is Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was tov for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Now, why is this a big moment? Why is this a big moment in the history of humanity, in the history of our world? Because up to this point in the story, as God creates the universe, only he decides what's good and what's not good. He's the one who says, yep, tov, not tov, tov, not tov, right? He is the determiner. And yet, in this moment, right here, humanity takes a turn, and they start to say, no, I'll decide what's good for myself. God, you have your opinions, you have your thoughts, but you know what? I'll decide what's good for me and what's not good for me. And how many of us live that way still today? What's good, what's not good? I don't care what God says. I'll make the decision. 
on my own. Now, when we fast forward back to Exodus chapter 2, what we find is that this moment points back to that moment. In the Eden story, Eve partners with the serpent and rebels against God. But in the Moses story, his mother partners with God and rebels against Pharaoh, against evil. You'll also remember that in Genesis, Eve eats the tove fruit and she gives some to Adam. And then what do they do? They eat this fruit and then they, they hide. They hide from God. Like, we got to get out of here. We want God who, who really is good to see what we've done, right? They hide. But in the Moses story, his mom doesn't hide herself from God. She hides the baby from evil. You see, the story of Moses is saying to us here that God's plan of deliverance for his people is not just from this moment. This is not just deliverance from this Pharaoh in this moment. He's saying God actually plans to deliver you from this moment, but also from that moment. He's saying God wants to deliver you from Pharaoh, but he also wants to deliver you from the great Pharaoh, from the bondage and brokenness of life separated from him. And that's why, friends, the Moses story does not just point back to Genesis, but it also points ahead to the Savior. Listen for a minute. Listen. Does this story sound familiar? We just celebrated Christmas, so it should. But does this story sound familiar? A king decrees that all of the male infants should be killed. Yet one escapes his wrath, and a child is born who grows up and delivers the people. Does that sound familiar? He's rejected by his own people. He goes into the wilderness. He's anointed with the Spirit, and he returns to lead his people out of bondage. We're talking about Jesus or Moses here? Both. He's under the sentence of condemnation and death, But the very sentence itself results in him being raised up as the prince and liberator of his people. You see, friends, the story of Moses is a foretaste of the good news of Jesus. Even when all hope seems lost, even when it seems God was nowhere to be found, even when it seemed that evil and darkness and despair and death and the grave had won, God was at work behind the scenes covertly and subversively and eternally to offer deliverance to his people. Friends, all week this week, I I have not been able to get out of my mind the mothers of these Hebrew babies. These mothers, and you say, it's been 80 years. It's been 80 years, God, and We're just suffering and hurting and dying and longing and grieving. And where are you and where have you been? And God says, I'm at work doing this huge thing. And I just imagine some of these mothers saying, but I just, but I just want my baby back. Right? I know you're doing this bigger thing, God, but but right now I just want my baby back, friends. And yet when we lift our eyes... And we understand that what Pastor Nick preached last week is true. That this life is just just a mist. Just a moment. Just a click. Just a half a millisecond compared to the eternity that we will spend with God. Then all of a sudden now we can endure because we know that these light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. I guess the question for us then, friends, is do we really believe in eternity Are we really holding on to the hope of heaven forever? 
Do we really believe that God is at work in our midst even when we can't see him? Even when we don't feel him? Even when we would have done it differently? That he's there. That he's working. And that in the end we will understand and see it all. That it will all make sense even if that never happens this side of heaven. We're going to close this morning singing a song called Another in the Fire. It's actually a song about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But it's a song about how when we're in the fire, when we're in the struggle, when we're in suffering, when we're in pain, when we're in the midst of tragedy, that we don't sit in that place alone, that God comes and he sits with us and he leads us through it. There's a line in the song, there's there's a chorus that says, there is no other name but the name that is Jesus. There is no other name but the name that is Jesus. The only person who will ultimately get you through the suffering and tragedy and difficulty of this world when the rubber meets the mat is Jesus Christ. Everything else will fail you. There is no other name but the name that is Jesus. All these things unseen and this reckoning, and I know I will never be alone. Friends, that's the offer today. To just remember that you are not alone. Maybe you've been through some some suffering. Maybe there's suffering in your life right now. Maybe it's just down the road. But friends, God wants you to know. He wants you to have this this hope, this security that God, that he is with you, that Jesus stands by you, that you are not left in that fiery furnace of this life by yourself. Do you know him this morning? Do you have him? Are you clinging to him? Is he your deliverer for the problems of this life and the great problem of this life? Is he the one that will connect you back to the Father forever? I pray that he is. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father, this morning I pray a special blessing to speak peace and life and hope, joy, security over people in this space who are walking through the fire right now. I ask God that you would draw close to them, that you would remind them that you are with them, that they are not alone, and that in ways that they see you, in ways that they don't, that you are at work, that you are working all things out for your glory and our good, and that someday it will all make sense. But draw close to us, Lord. Comfort us, strengthen us, give us courage and boldness and peace and life. We need you, Jesus. We seek you, we trust you, we turn to you, we love you and we rely on you. Give us more than we could even ever ask or imagine. That's our prayer. And we ask all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.